I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and Oliver Ralph, who's the deputy editor of Lex. We are also joined from the US by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who has a guest, Mike Mayo from CLSA, the analyst there, who will be talking about the latest ructions at Morgan Stanley. More of that later. The other stories we will be looking at today are, firstly, SME lending trends in the UK, where there's been a lot of innovation lately. And secondly, at Credit Suisse, news of yet more problems with the authorities. First, Emma, there's been so much going on lately in terms of the SME lending space in the UK. Tell us what's caught your eye in the last uh, few days. That's right. Well, we've seen Royal Bank of Scotland form a tie-up with three global asset managers in a sort of innovative structure to provide lending to private equity-backed medium-sized companies. So that's pretty interesting. And then we've also got WorldPay, the UK payments processor, launch into the UK corporate lending space for the first time. So to have these asset managers on one side move into the space, which is a further sign of shadow banking increasing and on the rise, we've also got uh, WorldPay as an alternative finance provider now. So these are two quite interesting developments in the past week alone. And how does that compare with the underlying market? You know, for years, the SME borrowers were being starved of credit. That at least was the political story, if you like. Is that market growing again now? And how do these innovations, uh, how are they likely to fit into that bigger picture? Yes. So following the financial crisis, the traditional lenders and high street banks retrenched from this arguably riskier segment of the lending market and also to shrink balance sheets. But recent data from the Bank of England show that net lending is on the rise under the funding for lending scheme. So I think there were some 700 million net loans in the third quarter to small and medium sized businesses. But interestingly, within this data, a funding circle is the third largest net lender, and that's a peer-to-peer provider. So this is a further sign that alternative lenders are on the rise. So we've got shadow banking, we've got alternative digital lenders such as peer-to-peer or marketplace platforms, and also asset managers step into the breach. It really is a pretty fragmented landscape at the moment, but um, at least it's growing, I guess. That's the good news. Let's leave that topic and move on to the second one for the day. Oliver, you've been taking a look at the latest news from Credit Suisse where we hear that the SEC in the US is preparing to accuse the Swiss bank of misleading investors. Yet another issue to add to a long list of regulatory problems. It is, and there's a a very long list. The allegation this time around from the SEC is that Credit Suisse misled investors by wrongly reporting where its assets under management are. The, The allegation is that instead of reporting assets in the US, which is where they were, they reported them as part of the Swiss private bank. There's no settlement on this yet. It's it's still underway. And the the Congress and the SEC have been investigating this issue for a while. Now, it's easy to say, actually... It doesn't matter where they report this. It's it's all assets under management of Credit Suisse. Does it really matter which pot they report them in? So long as they present to the outside world a fair view of what kind of assets they're managing, it shouldn't really be a problem. 
on the other hand, I, I think actually you need to have some faith that a company is reporting the true underlying picture, particularly in, in the world of Swiss private banking. There's been a lot of change there recently. A lot of assets have been flowing out of Swiss private banks. The end of banking secrecy laws there haven't helped, and people have been taking their money elsewhere. So there's a lot of challenges in that industry, and it's important for investors and, and the, the rest of the world to know exactly how Credit Suisse and indeed other private banks are doing in that context. Do we have any idea if this is true as to why Credit Suisse might have operated in this way, uh, kind of inflating one number and, and deflating another? Perhaps just to flatter the amount of uh, assets in the Swiss private bank. Maybe they were trying to present a, a better picture of, of that, or maybe they were trying to depress their US number. The Credit Suisse has had problems in the US market. It paid a $2.6 billion fine to settle tax evasion charges. So maybe it was related to that, but it's not clear at this stage. And how does this fit in, finally, to the bigger picture? Obviously, like many banks in the aftermath of the financial crisis, it's come under greater scrutiny from conduct regulators in particular. And it's got, as I say, like many other banks, a long list of ongoing litigation risks. It has, yes. And we can expect these things to carry on. We, We might be sitting here seven years after the financial crisis, but still there's a lot working through the system. Last year's annual report from Credit Suisse had eight pages worth of litigation risks covering everything, stretching all the way back to Enron, mortgages, bank loans, tax and securities law, rates-related litigation matters, matters in Singapore, alternative trading systems, Icelandic banks. The lists go on, and Credit Suisse is not a remarkable or, or different in this way. Lots of banks will have this, a similar sort of litigation report. So we've got to expect more settlements like this to come out over the coming years. Yeah, as you say, it'll run and run, I think. Well, let's move on now to our final topic for the day. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been in conversation with Mike Mayo, who's an analyst at CLSA, a famously outspoken analyst. And they've been talking, among other things, about the latest ructions at Morgan Stanley. Over to you, Ben. Well, joining me now is Mike Mayo, one of the best-known analysts on Wall Street. Mike recently put out a note on Morgan Stanley, describing it as a firm with two very good businesses in capital markets equities and investment banking, and one lousy one. That's FIC, Fixed Income, Currency and Commodities. Now, FIC, Mike, has been in the news recently, particularly in the context of Morgan Stanley, having apparently committed to cutting headcount in FIC by another 25%. That's after all the cuts over the past uh, five or six years. Now, you've described this as a symptom of the biggest business model disruption this decade amongst US investment banks. What do you mean? There's been a memo sent by regulators to the largest bank saying, simplify and streamline. And I say memo in a general sense, but Morgan Stanley has gotten the memo from the regulators more than any other large U.S. bank. Last several years, Morgan Stanley has increased the percentage of wealth management revenues from one-third to one-half. At the same time, they've reduced the contribution to FIC by half. So that's what we mean about a major business model change. And you've likened it to the change that UBS has undergone in Europe. Exactly. UBS focused on what it does best, and that's wealth management. Likewise, Morgan Stanley is focusing on what it does best, which would be not only wealth management, but also investment banking and equities. Okay. But looking at the first uh, nine months of this year, uh, the first quarter in FIC for Morgan Stanley was very good. Third quarter, very bad, as we've discussed. But o- over the first nine months, I think they're in fact up in net revenues uh, over the year. Is this the right time to look to make further swinging cuts to FIC? Oh, my. Look at Morgan Stanley's record over a longer time frame. It wasn't just third quarter fixed income results that were bad at Morgan Stanley. They've been bad for the last decade when revenues in fixed income have been down 37% 
at a time when they've been up 3% at peer. So if it was one quarter, fine. This is a decade worth of fixed income problems at Morgan Stanley. And you've recently discussed with investors about what they think about the FIC department and, and the direction it should be taking under the chief executive, James Gorman. Can you describe what they're telling you? It was very surprising to me. We released a 40-page report on Morgan Stanley in early November. The day after, we received five unsolicited phone calls and emails saying Morgan Stanley needs to clean up its fixed income business, saying that if they don't do that, then they would need to exert more pressure on the company, talk to the CEO, and they'd get a piece of their mind. Is this a suggestion that activism could be coming to to that stock? Activism could come to any bank stock or wider also. Look, any company such as Morgan Stanley, which has single-digit ROEs, and especially a company like Morgan Stanley, where the sum of the parts are worth you know, over half more than the current market value, could be susceptible to having activists come in. In fact, they had one come in a, a couple years ago for a brief period. Having said that, so long as Morgan Stanley takes control of its destiny, cleans up the worst performing area of fixed income, and has a clear path to generating double-digit ROEs, then everything should be fine. Should they fall short of that, anything goes. How deep should the cuts go then at FIC? As I understand it, Morgan Stanley's made enormous cuts to its inventories over the past five years. They've reduced headcount quite significantly too. Um, how much more needs to be done? Well, pull the lens back a little bit. Morgan Stanley has already been restructuring fixed income very aggressively this decade. The level of their fixed income related assets are already down by more than half. So they've already done quite a bit. Having said that, there's ongoing pressure. There's cyclical, structural and regulatory pressures in fixed income. The amount of capital that Morgan Stanley has to put up for fixed income has gone up due to regulatory requirements. That's like saying their cost of goods sold have gone up. That's one pressure. Then you have the structural changes taking place in the fixed income markets, electronic trading, pressures on their fees, and then there's potential cyclical pressures ahead. You've had great issuance, but how much longer does, does that last? And all those cyclical structural factors also apply to Goldman Sachs. But they're making very different uh, mood music about FIC. They say that now is a time to really focus on it, to take advantage of the strategic upheavals, say, at Deutsche Bank, at Credit Suisse, at Barclays, some big FIC players who are going through real turmoil. Why does the same logic not apply to Morgan Stanley? I just want to agree with your statement. I mean, Goldman Sachs has said there is, quote, historic retreat of European bank competitors. Having said that, it's not one size fits all. So Goldman is twice as large in fixed income. They have more scale and skill, and I'd say better execution. For the last decade, Goldman Sachs has performed well. Morgan Stanley hasn't. So this comes down to pure comparative advantage. This is economics 101. Specialize in what you do best. So for Goldman Sachs, it's going to be more fixed income. For UBS, it's going to be more wealth management. And for Morgan Stanley, at least relative to fixed income, it's equities and investment banking and wealth management. So very bad news for all those fit guys about to lose their jobs in the run-up to Christmas. But let, let's throw it forward a little bit. You, you mentioned the single-digit ROE before, which um, I think Morgan Stanley has specified it wants to hit double digits uh, before long, but has provided no clear time frame. Is that good enough when you personally have attacked uh, Bank of America for failing to provide much guidance on exactly when it expects to hit its targets? Well, you're the one who just brought up Bank of America. <laughs> I'll say... Bank America has some of the worst transparency that we've seen for financial information. Morgan Stanley has provided 
a variety of financial targets, and they give updates on that. Once a year, Morgan Stanley gives an update. We expect the CEO to give an update on its strategic plan in mid-January when they report fourth quarter earnings. We have some visibility to a double-digit ROE at Morgan Stanley by 2017. Should they fall short, that is not good enough, and the pressure is on Morgan Stanley to generate returns above its cost of capital. Otherwise, what's the point of them existing in their current business form? And it seems that much of the spade work is falling on the shoulders of, uh, if that's not a mixed metaphor, a guy called Ted Pick, who's elevated to the position of the head of the entire capital markets business uh, recently. Do you think he's a potential successor to James Gorman? It is remarkable that one month into the job, Ted Pick is overseeing a program that reduces headcount and fixed income by one-fourth. That's making some very hard decisions, especially before the holidays. Should Ted Pick succeed as well as he did in equities in fixed income, which he now also oversees, he would potentially be a successor uh, longer term. But I would say this is the next generation beyond some of those others at the top of the firm right now. Okay. And just wrapping up with your price targets on Morgan Stanley, which is quite a bit higher than the current share price. How much does that rest on successful execution of this ongoing FIC transformation? FIC is a key component for our recommendation. We estimate that returns and fixed income are only around 4 or 5%. It's dismal. And investors, and I've had enough of that, should they turn that around and simply improve those returns, that would be one of several factors that we think could lead to a doubling of Morgan Stanley stock over the next three years. Mike Mayo, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma and Oliver here in the studio and Ben and his guest Mike Mayo over in New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>